Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Bar Radio. And we're off, we're off, we're off. Shut up! Right, we're off. Okay, right, brilliant. We're back, we're back with a bang. We're back with a bang with our nine-step plan. It's um, uh, uh, fan club. Um, listening to fan club, my name's uh, Nick Helm. And I'm joined in the studio live uh, uh, with uh, by Nathaniel... Metcalf. Metcalf. And we're listening to uh, ourselves. That's it, each other. Uh, we had a week off, and uh, now we're back. Uh, I think nothing better to prepare yourself for the uh, Christmas hiatus than having a week off <laughs> just to get prepared <laughs> for it. So it's nice to be nice and rested for our uh, penultimate show of the year. Um uh, I think we'd like to start off the show by thanking everyone for listening to us so far this year. Yes. Um, it's been an absolute shit show. Uh, not our show, uh, the year in general. If anything, listening to this show has been an improvement, which gives you an indication of just how bad this year has been. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, we've almost at the end of 2020. And, uh, and I, how long... It was, everyone was quite excited about, weren't they, the idea of 2020. Like well, I was excited before it happened. I was excited about 1997 because, of course, that is the year that uh, New York got uh, walled in, turned yeah. into a federal prison, and uh, the president crash landed there, needed to be saved by a certain Mister Snake Plissken. Um But when <laughs> 1997 came and went, uh, we had to get on with our bloody lives. And that's when 2020 started winking its eyes. Well, 2012, obviously, uh, with the Mayan calendar, the end of the world. But then we had a space odyssey. Space Odyssey. Uh, so, two th- well, we'll do it chronologically. So, it was 19- the three big ones, obviously, 1997, yeah. uh, when Snake Plissken saved the president from oh. <laughs> from the walled in. New York City. Um, then, of course, when was Escape from LA? Set? I don't know, I was just thinking that, because that probably came out in 1997, didn't it? About I, think it came out in, I think it was 96. Okay, um, just, so, just so they got it ahead, just so they could say, still got to happen, guys. Don't it, might have been, it might have been 97. I mean, that would make a little bit of sense, wouldn't it? Because yeah, they'd have gone, hey, this is the year that... Uh, it was meant to, yeah, it was 96. Fucking hell. I mean, that's weird. I mean, it's uncanny, isn't it? Uncanny. So, 1997. Um, uncanny. 1997. Uh, so, if you just do a little Wikipedia search, when was Escape from LA? Well, I imagine it was. Set. When was Escape from New York made? 1982? 1981? 1981, I reckon. Um... Matley will tell us, no doubt. When was the thing? 1981, 1980? Is that safe to it? So maybe... <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even mean to mention it! <laughs> oh, no. What was that so, now? Three minutes past. Escape from so, New York was 81. 19, but, 19, 1981, right. The same year, obviously, as uh, American Werewolf in London and the Howling. Um... <laughs> And uh, obs. Uh, so if that was then, then it would be 15 years later. So I'm imagining Escape from L.A. was set in 
2012. Do you think? Well, it should be, shouldn't it? Mathematically. So can you, can you just tell us... Uh, 2013, yeah, right. For, there, give or take, there you go. Um, so the year after, the Mayans predicted... So those are the big years then. 97, put them in your diaries. 1997, put that in your diary. 1997, uh, 2001, Space Odyssey. Yeah. Um, 2010, uh, equals... Uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. 2010, obviously the sequel, to, yes, the sequel. Uh, 2012, the year the Mayans destroyed the world. Yeah. 2013, the year uh, the earthquake came along and uh, separated Los Angeles from mainland America, uh, requiring uh, the, the Snake Piskin to again go in and save, is it the president's daughter this time? And also play... A nice game of hoops. Um, <laughs> um, and then, of course, after that, 2020 is the big one. And that's what we got. Um, I don't know about uh, your vision of 2020, but uh, mine certainly wasn't 2020. No. Uh, yes. It wasn't as... Wasn't, uh, wasn't, 2020 wasn't as clear-sighted as I'd imagined. Yeah. Hmm? Uh, 2020. 2020, though, they say, don't they? So next year, we could go, yeah, it was shit, wasn't it? That's the idea. We, it's very rare that you go through... I don't know. Sometimes sometimes it takes a good experience to... Um, sometimes it takes a bad experience to help you realise uh, uh, that you were in a good experience, and sometimes it takes a good experience to help you realise that actually you, you were living a half-life. Um, but I think that this year... Um, we had a little chat about this last week, weren't we, about, like, how everyone's... I think we've all known that this has been a shit year. Yes. It has been a shit year, right? And because uh, just, to, just to give you all a heads up, we're doing our Christmas special next week. Um, this is, like, our look back on the year. It has been absolutely shit this year. Um, you can see what I've been watching behind me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this has been, yeah, this has been an absolutely... Uh, and I think it's one of those things that whenever we've had a guest on, we've said, how are you? And they've always gone, oh, I, oh I, it's been a, a shit year, but I can't complain, everyone's having, a tr- yeah. having trouble. And I think part of the problem is that, yeah, everyone is, everyone is having problems and, and, um, and we're all kind of, like, making the... We're all, I think most of us are all trying to make the best out of a bad situation. But I also think that it is absolutely um, fair and probably important to acknowledge just how ridiculously shit this year has been. Yeah, exactly. I think people really have to... Like, it's it's not it's not normal what we've been doing, and I think it's all right to go, even though you can compare yourselves with other people who have had... You know, you can think of people who go, well, they've had a much shitter year than me for various reasons. It's still all right to go... Yeah, well, you know, it's still shit for me. You know, it's not. On a one-on-one on a, on a one level, there are people that have had shit years and people that have had better years. But everyone is basically making do under these extreme circumstances. And, um, and yeah, this year has been absolute dog shit. Mm. And uh, no matter how much of a, um, a positive spin I've tried to put on things, uh, there have been, like, moments, and especially more recently than not, 
where I've kind of like just sort of checked in with myself and gone, oh, do you know what? I thought I was okay, but in actual fact, looking back, yeah. I feel like I feel like I've been crazy the whole year. Yeah, I think there's a um, base level that people have in general of how they're feeling at all times. And what we haven't acknowledged really, or I haven't acknowledged too much, and I think a lot of people haven't, is at the base level this year, there's been much shitter than other years. So you kind of, your your average of how you're feeling at all times is much lower than you would be anyway, because you just, everything's, you know, there's a, there's a level of sort of stress and uh, anxiety about it that just never goes away and has been constant throughout the year. It's like being punched. It's like being punched in the face every day. And then one day you go, oh, they took their rings off. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, (laughs) that's that's a good day. So it's kind of like, it's, um, it's just been absolutely fucking shit. Um, I just, I hate the fact that we can't just sort of like um, uh, go out and hang out with people and um, uh, see our families and just do regular, not even like special things, just do regular, boring. Can't believe London has been made tier three as of tomorrow, but if you listen to this on Friday, yesterday. Oh, as of Thursday this week. I mean, fucking Christmas shopping. I mean, fucking anyway, anyway, it's been an absolute fucking shit show this year. I'm fucking furious about it. I want my fucking money back. I want my year back. I want my money back. I've spent so much money on uh, in-game add-ons and um, fucking... It says, what do you want for Christmas? Nothing. I've bought everything I ever wanted this year. Um, There's an element to it where, where you've just got a uh, yeah you've just got to kind of accept it and go right this is bad I think we can kind of I think it's the one year where justifiably we can almost say right this hasn't happened starting in March next year I think we go back to being March 2020 that's my that's how, we, how it works we go I think we can March that's it that's gone none of us have got any older we're all the same age as we were last March. And uh, we just get to—it's like a do-over. Yeah, I think that I think that, that would be entitled hmm. government-sanctioned do-over, where you know I'm going to be—I can't believe I'm going to be forty next year. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. Although I—I I had quite a nice fortieth. I had a very nice fortieth birthday. You can have another one. But um, well, I'm going to have a fucking another one. <laughs> going to fucking—I'm going to be eighty. Um, that's how that's how much I'm going to fucking celebrate next year. Um, Twenty has aged you by another forty years. I mean, it's uh, it's just, it's been. I just had a, I just had a chat with my doctor, and they said that uh, my cholesterol is slightly up. It's down from um, <laughs> it's down from what it was four years ago. So I was just like, that's good. And they said, yeah, but it's still up. And I was just like, yeah, but it's down from what it was. Come on, be fucking positive. I said, you know, give me some uh, tips on how to get my um, cholesterol down. And they said, you know, it's exercise and diet. I said, are you doing lots of exercise at the moment? And you just like go, what fucking year have you been in? 
They were like, how much do you weigh? It's because I don't know how much I weigh. I haven't weighed myself since my fucking gym closed. It was like five weeks ago, for fuck's sake. What f- do you know what I mean? We're all doing our fucking best. I know you're a fucking doctor. I know it took you four years to fucking train to tell me that I haven't been fucking exercising. It's like when you're fucking... Uh, your steps fucking chat up, you know, pipe up, and they're like, you haven't done as much exercise this week as you did last week. It's just like, you know, fucking shit, you fucking piece of shit, fucking cunt, fuck you. There's a little phone telling you, oh, this something, you know, you've got access to the fucking news. Your, your phone does. Your, you know, your phone is sentient. Um, yeah, I think, like, it's just almost like, I think you can kind of forgive yourself a lot this year. There's a... I am forgiving myself a lot this year. I'm forgiving myself for fucking, not everything, but fucking for a lot. And uh, and one of them is, oh, really? Uh, I haven't been doing as much exercise as I fucking should be. And my diet's gone to shit. A, I've been living off fucking mince pies for the last three weeks because it's the only thing that makes me happy. Yeah. And B, fucking... Uh, I'm not going to fucking... How how many fucking steps do you want me to do in my fucking 12 by 12 foot living room that I'm fucking... I've spent a year fucking living in? There's a... <laughs> on the flip side of that, although I think people should be uh, kind to themselves this Christmas uh, because it has been a tough year. I, Get I, your I, fucking I, steps I, in, guys. Get your fucking steps in. Yeah, go on. I would say that that advert on TV, have you seen the Tesco advert? where they say there's no naughty lists this year because we've all had a tough year. And then you go, okay, fair enough. It's sort of saying the same thing. What annoys me about the advert is people give examples and they annoy me. So it's all people going, well, I actually went on holiday this year. Am I on the naughty list? And you go, wait, don't go on holiday. Don't go on holiday. And then there's another one going, I bought loads of toilet roll. And you go, you selfish prick. Don't do that. I mean, it's this sort of, it's trying to be, I understand the point of it. The point they're trying to make is the point that I'm making is that you shouldn't be hard on yourself. And if you want to have a mince pie, have a mince pie. That's going to make you feel but, a bit better for 30 seconds. Have a mince pie. But, but don't go on holiday. Yeah. Don't you buy know what I mean? If you, like, like uh, uh, no one's on the naughty list this year. Unless you had an absolutely fucking normal year. Yeah. And then you can <laughs> fuck right off. Unless you made absolutely zero sacrifices, didn't yeah. wear a mask, went on holiday, went fucking shopping every fucking day, fucking touched your fucking eyes, licked to fucking railing, <laughs> fucking breathed on old people, then you're on the fucking naughty list, you fucking <laughs> cunt. If you've had a fucking absolutely normal fucking life with no fucking... Uh, uh, sanctions for fucking anyone and don't give a fucking shit about who you fucking breathe on, who you fucking affect, where you fucking travel, then you can be, be, you can be on a fucking naughty list just by having, oh, I went on holiday this year. Well, fuck you, you fucking piece of fucking shit. I hope you have a fucking, I hope, I hope you fucking fuck your own fucking Christmas up, you fucking absolute cocksucker. I fucking hate, I hate it. Right, and but the other thing is, it's just kind of like uh, there's that other. It's for Argos, and they're kind of like, um, oh, oh, uh, uh, it's not like no one's on the naughty list this year. It's just kind of like, uh, oh, we all deserve to get whatever we want this Christmas. And it's just like, what a lovely sentiment. 
what a lovely selfless sense. Oh, no, it's an advert for a fucking shop. And they're basically just like going, oh, do you know what we can really... You know, you know everyone's a bit like tight on money this year because work's being fucked. So uh, how are we going to get people to buy things? Oh, we'll get to fucking sell fucking our products by... By, by treating it like it's a fucking gift to yourself. Like, it's a fucking... Tri- and fuck it, it's just evil. It's disgusting. I fucking love Christmas, but I fucking hate it this year. I think, I think fucking... Fucking... And now we're in tier three, because Christmas shopping's gone through, because everyone's just like... You fucking sentimental pieces of shit. Just have Christmas in four months' time when the fucking vaccine comes out. We're all feeling better about ourselves. I mean, why can't you just fucking put a fucking hold on your fucking... You know, oh, no, we're not going to be see our family at Christmas, you know, it's hard being on your own at Christmas, it's hard being on your own all fucking year, it's hard not seeing your fucking family all fucking year do you know what I mean, you're never gonna see him again if you fucking keep doing this it's gonna go on for like the next 30, 40, 50 years because every time you get a fucking opportunity you go up to your fucking friends and lick their fucking faces, just for fuck's sake, just fucking everyone stay in for fucking four weeks we can get rid of this fucking shit we can get on with our fucking lives so what have you been a fan of this week, Nathaniel? I'll tell you what I've been a fan of. I watched uh, I watched the film Less Than Zero. Have you ever seen Less Than Zero? Is that John Cusack? No, it's... Uh, uh, what am I thinking of? What am I thinking of when I say... You think of the sure thing? Or... No, I'm thinking of um, the one where... Uh, almost Dead? No. <laughs> What's it called? The one when he's... Might as well be dead. Better off dead. Better off dead. Better off dead. That's what I'm thinking of. Less than zero. Now, that's not the one with Bill Pullman and Ben Stiller, is it? That's the zero effect. Yes. So what is less than zero? Uh, Andrew McCarthy, Robert Downey Jr., James Spader, and... Oh, what's her name? The one who's in Lost Boys as well. The, the, uh... Oh, what's her name? Jamie Uh, Gertz. Jamie Gertz, yes. Can I ask you a quick question here? Yeah. Is this the film where the Bangles do the cover version of Hazy's Shade of Winter for the soundtrack? Yes, it is. Yes! I've not seen the film, but I have seen the music video for the Bangles many times. My sister, when we were growing up, was not only a massive Andrew McCarthy fan, and so, by association, so was I, but she was also a massive Bangles fan. And when that music video came out, Synergy, and uh, it was the Bangles with, doing the soundtrack to an Andrew McCarthy movie. And uh, no, I never, it's weird that I've never seen it. Well, I've never seen um, it. Is that... it grown? It's like, it's like a grow, it's a film for grown ups, though, right? Yeah, it's very much a film it's not, for grown ups. It's not Andrew McCarthy and James Spade uh, uh, running around at a department store fucking uh, a mannequin. It's, <laughs> no. You know that kids movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 Andrew McCarthy and James Spader going around and doing. What are they fucking in this film? Well, it's it's based on a book. It's based on a <laughs> book. And I read the book, and I kind of couldn't quite believe they made a film of it. And when you watch the film, they really haven't. They've kind of. It's like weirdly, it's very dark for an eighties teen movie with like that sort of cast in it. It's incredibly dark for that kind of movie, but it's also not nearly as nihilistic as the book is. And I don't even know that I liked the book. I was just more fascinated to see the film because it was like, well, that was horrible. How are you going to do... How, how did they make a film of this? 
but they kind of it, it, compared to the book, it's really sort of sanitized, and it's nothing like nothing like the book. And all the characters are made a bit more likable as well, uh, but it's still dark and very bleak for the kind of movie you think it is. I can imagine it made no money because you'd imagine. I imagine the people that would go and see the film at the time would have expected it to be a lot more light-hearted than it is. What year? 87. The Biscuits ah, kind of based on those kind of people as well. It's based on those kind of Los Angeles kids whose parents are movie stars and or film directors and things, you know. It's the sort of kids of, uh, the kids of that kind of generation, I guess. The people that would have had kids in there. In there. Late sixties, early seventies. It made uh, four point uh, two, no, four point four million at the box office in 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 profit. So the budget was eight million, and the box office was twelve point four. So okay. it, it made. A, but then I don't know how much they would have marketed it. And um, interesting, interesting, because it's it's weird because. Um, because I guess Mannequin was 86 or 87, and I guess St. Elmo's Fire was 85, maybe yeah. maybe 84. Um, Lost Boys. It's, it's, it's basically, it's like the Expendables of, uh, like Robert Downey Jr. is in it. Uh, it's the Expendables of um, Brat Pat movies, mm. where let's get them all together and do a film with them. It's a weird choice, though. Brett Easton Ellis. So he did American Psycho, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've seen the movie. I've not read in Lessons Zero. What, American Psycho. Yeah, I've never. Read You've not read American. No, book. I I watched American Psycho quite recently. I think it's um, I think it's an excellent film. I think what it does really well is like the book for American Psycho is um, it's one of the only books that I've had to put down because it was so graphic. And like look away from the actual printed page where you're reading it and then you go oh my god and then you have to put it down for a minute and sort of like compose yourself and read it start reading it again it's very funny it's sort of like there'll be a whole chapter on um uh like a, a whitney houston song or a whitney houston album or a um there'll be a whole chapter on huey lewis in the news um where he's just sort of like talks about the music. And then there'll be a chapter where he uh, stabs a tramp in the eye. And it's like, you know... So it's kind of like, it's a satire like that. Or there'll be a chapter on the card that they use for their business cards and the print and all of that. And what the film gets across really well is the tone. Uh -huh. But what it, what, it, um, what it does really well is um, it doesn't have... All it, it, I mean, it's it's not particularly graphic, but you feel like you've seen a lot more than you have, and um, and it's exactly appropriate for that sort of uh, that that material. So they tone they tone down the violence, but not in a way that makes you feel like they've, um, you know, made massive compromises. It feels like a complete film, and Christian Bale is incredible in it, like almost like a career best. It's yeah. a very, it's a very funny performance, but it's also sort of like um, it, he's not really going for the laughs. It's sort of it's funny, but it's sort of understated. It's it's really good, but um, uh, but I think that that's kind of what made Brett Easton Ellis like a big 
like a, that was his breakthrough thing. Yeah, I mean, I so was old enough to know about Less Than Zero when I was a kid, but I'd never heard of him before. American Psycho. It's only in retrospect that you go, oh, there is this other adaptation of his. Uh, yeah, but there would have been less reference for him. Yeah. And it would have been kind of like, it would have been more a case of, hey, there's this book, which with a bit of tweaking would be a great Andrew McCarthy, James Spader vehicle. Mm-hmm. We're, in, we're in actual fact. Was that like, uh, that'd be their third film together? Pretty in Pink, Mannequin, and Less Than Zero. Um, and of course, uh-huh, um, what's, um, what's James Spader's... Uh, TV series called Blacklist. Yes, yeah. So Andrew McCarthy directs that now. Not uh, right. So he's directed. Um, he's a photographer now, and uh, he's directed a few episodes of Blacklist because he directed The Sinner, and it came up, and I was just like, "Oh, hang on a minute." Well, he directed one episode of The Sinner, which was a really good episode. Um, so I was like, "What the Andrew McCarthy?" Huh? So The Sinner obviously signed Bill Pullman from uh, The Zero Effect. Uh, not to be confused with Absolute Zero, starring Andrew McCarthy and... Oh, that's fan club! <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so Andrew McCarthy going into directing, so they still sort of work together. They must have really got on. Yeah, that's um, nice. It's nice when that happens. I guess that's true. I also it, saw this week... Uh, oh, go on. Well, I just think that it was kind of like... It would have been a vehicle for the Brat Pack, and then they would have gone, this book kind of vaguely fits, but we'll have to, like... Smooth off all the edges, exactly. and then later on, it's just like we can get that cast and put them in this. But actually, I think tonally, it's probably not going to appeal to a lot of those people that like those movies because it's just too dark, I think, too bleak. Oh, but is it good? Sort of. It's kind of good. Like, I, I think <laughs> it's like um, I think it's good in itself. It's just like, it's a weird watch having read the book because you're just constantly comparing it, going. Oh wow, you haven't done any of this. You've cut all that out. You know, it's so different. But it's kind of it's kind of interesting. It's very eighties. It's very much of its time. And I think it does quite a good job of reflecting that era. It does feel quite realistic. You can imagine that was what it was like being a teenager in eighties Los Angeles if you were super rich, you know. Um and I think it's I think the film more is a slightly I think the book is kind of like going aren't these people awful? And the film is a bit more like, pretty cool guys. You know, I think that's partly the, the one of the big differences between them. Is it about kind of like um, rich parents and not knowing your place in the world and being a teenager and it's kind of like a coming-of-age thing for rich, yuppie kids? No, because it's, it's more like the, it's you know, these kids have got too much confidence, essentially. They're, they're basically adults and thinking they're living in an adult world when they're basically 17. They've got money and they've got cars and, you know, they're basically living this sort of very adult life. But that's like Pretty in Pink. Have you seen Pretty in Pink? Yeah, yeah. Where you've got James Spader and uh, Andrew McCarthy and there's no parents around hmm. and they're kind of like wearing uh, jackets with rolled-up sleeves like Miami Vice and they're kind of... They've got phones in their bedroom. But they're kind of like... Still at school, yeah. But it's kind of like I don't know. Oh, are they meant to be older than? I know. Oh, like, I think that's Molly... it. I think weirdly, I think what like the film and the book makes me think that that is that's quite an accurate depiction of what it's like. 
But I think it's almost pointing out how weird and mad that is, really, that you've got these kind of, you know, almost like independently wealthy teenagers, or not independently wealthy at all. They all get given their money by their parents, but then yeah. they, they get given <laughs> some money. They've all got cars. Money, and... Money's never been money's never been like a, a thing, which yeah. is why this, like, that's that. I mean, that's what I like about. I like Pretty in Pink, but I would have to say that um, I like the. I prefer the gender reversal one, um, some kind of wonderful. Mm. Um, uh, some kind of wonderful was basically the exact same film as Pretty in Pink. Different ending, but the exact same film as Pretty in Pink, only uh, it's about um, a poor guy instead of a poor girl. But, like, the whole thing is kind of like... Um, uh, I guess it's... Uh, hmm, what am I talking about? I'm talking about sort of like... You have, like, the Andrew McCarthy and James Bader characters, and it's not that they're rich. They are rich. But it's the fact that money has never been um, an option. So it's kind of like... Money's never been kind of, like, up for debate. And um, when you have, like, these rich Los Angeles schools, and then it's kind of like you have, like, a kid that doesn't have so much money that goes to those schools. It's not the fact that there's a whole group of poor kids. It's the fact that money isn't even kind of like uh, thought about in those kind of circles. Mm. And so when you have someone that can't afford all the other stuff, that's why they kind of hide it from them. But like Pretty in Pink is literally about a girl from the wrong side of the tracks. I think she has to cross over some tracks. Or maybe that's the beginning of um, Some Kind of Wonderful as well, where he's walking home from school and he literally plays chicken with a train, right, in, in, during the opening credits. I mean... What great movies. I really want to see um, uh, Less Than Zero. Where, do, where can I see that? I saw it on Amazon, a rental. I think it, you know, usually about 350 aren't they? But it just feels like as well that when, when you go, oh, I'll fill that gap, because it's always one of those films that you're kind of aware of, of coming out in my lifetime. But it's like, never saw it, don't really know anything about it. As I say, it's weird that I've not seen it because of the Bangles thing. Mm. Um, but you never guess what. I mean, I've got the reason I've got my um, computer in my living room is it's quite a big screen computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I originally bought it one, when I was editing um, Heavy Entertainment. So it's quite old, actually. It's like maybe six years old. Um, and I wanted, like, a big screen to sort of, like, watch back stuff. I wasn't personally editing the whole thing, but I had to watch the edits back and make notes and stuff like that. Um, so I've got it in my living room because uh, Amazon doesn't work on my TV. Oh. And as of yesterday, Amazon works on my TV. You've never... Christmas is saved. I can watch <laughs> everything. Do you know what I did? Um, I, uh, I got... Amazon on my TV, I realised that not only do I have Netflix, not only do I have Sky, I've now got Amazon. Uh, I've been with Sky for five years, they've just given me the VIP gold package, which I guess means that um, some of the channels might start working and I get reception in my bedroom. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's an exciting prospect. Um, and I've got, all, I've got access to, like, hundreds and thousands of pieces of entertainment. And do you know what the first thing I did was yesterday? Uh, I panicked, I panicked, I panicked, and I watched uh, the trailer for Meet the Spartans. What's Meet the Spartans? It's from the directors of Epic Movie, and it's about, uh, it's their spoof on 300. When did it come out? 
2007. Oh, that's all right. I thought it was new. <laughs> no, it, it stars Sean from, um Grange Hill. Yeah. Um, Grange Hill, EastEnders and Pop Fame. Um, we, uh, we've got to play a song. You were just about to tell me what you else you've been watching, so we'll play a song. Hey, I saw tell her. me about that. Don't tell me yet. We play the song. Okay. Then we'll come back to it. Then I'll tell you something I've seen. And then we'll do the fan mail. Then we'll bring our guest on. Come on, Nathaniel. There's a fucking tried and tested, excellent format for this show. Okay. Uh, so give it, the, give it the respect it deserves. Play that song. and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. We're back, we're back, we're back. I'm just, um, uh, what have you been a fan of this week? I'm just finishing a mouthful of uh, salad. Um, well, not say. a euphemism, not a euphemism. Um, um, so, what we, what, what was the other thing that you saw other than... I say that I also saw the film... Bell what, does the ti- what, what does the title Less Than Zero mean? Do you know what? I don't know. Like they're less than nothing. They're like they're Maybe less than they're less than worthless. Like zero is saying too much for these pieces of filth. These kids, they're less than zero. Is that what it's saying? It might be. It kind of makes sense, but there's no other obvious thing. Um, I was going to say um, the other thing I was going to chat to you about was I saw the film Bell Book and Candle, uh-huh. which is a uh, uh, James Stewart, Kim Novak movie. And just because we're talking about Andrew McCarthy and James Spader, I thought it was weird that you go, that's oh, weird seeing Kim Novak and James Stewart in another movie together. Oh, and I was trying to work out what year it came out, whether it came out before or after Vertigo, and came out exactly the same year. And I just thought, well... Who, who directed it? This is directed by a guy I can't remember, actually. No, I can't remember. It wasn't a name I was particularly familiar with. But it's another one that's a bit like there's a big um so really kind of quite a charming film, but it um it came Is off it a thriller? Is it a thriller? It's like a comedy. She's a witch and she's basically um is she kinda of gonna put a spell on James Stewart to make him fall in love with her? But it's She's a fucking witch. She's a fucking witch. Yeah. It's modern day kind of witchcraft in the sixties. It's it's a sort of jazz era witchcraft. Movie. Is it like? Is it like it's Bewitched? Comedy. Yeah. So it's basically at the end of it, they said, "Oh, it's um, it was a big influence on Bewitched." And you go, "Of course it is. That's what it is." And it's Jack Lemmon as well. Jack Lemmon and Elsa Lanchester, Bride of Frankenstein's in it. You know, What's it called? Bell Book and Candle. It's like it's it sounds incredible. Film. It's really great. It sounds incredible. It sounds incredible. Really charming film. Uh, Have you heard it? Like, it, it's like um, it's like a '50s jazz. So all the witches are kind of quite modern, jazz era, and they sort of seem cooler. They seem a bit cooler, whereas James Stewart's kind of like, you know, he's kind of getting on a bit. And, it's, and I think they say it's like the last film where James Stewart played a romantic lead. And he's like, um, uh, and he's, you know, slightly older, a bit stuffier, and she's kind of younger, a bit cooler, and a witch. <laughs> um, it, it's really charming. I really liked it. Um, Natalie... If it's Vertigo era, um, Less Than Zero is named after the Elvis Costello song, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. If it's Vertigo era, James um, Stewart, 
I mean, he was old in Vertigo. Not, like, ancient, but he was kind of, like... His age in Vertigo sort of adds to the film because it is that, that creepy older man type vibe. Yeah. Where he's obsessed with Kim Novak. But that's... Um, in fact, it's got Jack Lemmon in it. I've never heard of it. Mm. Have you heard of it before? Have you seen it before? I sort of like it. I think it used to be on TV a lot when I was a kid, but I, I sort of... Um, I just saw it mentioned and I went... And it was just another thing like that that sort of goes, oh, yeah, what was that? I sort of remember seeing it on TV or something or, like, sort of being aware of it as something that was on telly and just something that doesn't seem to be on anymore. And I thought, oh, look that up. I like, you know, I like the cast. And uh, and it was really, yeah, really sort of charming, really kind of funny, charming film. Um, <laughs> um, apparently, 12 cats were needed to perform the number of stunts in the film. Oh, yeah, she's got... Uh, a cat in it called Piwacket. And it is a very... Uh... Called what? <laughs> Piwacket. So Piwacket? That... Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was James Stewart's final role as a romantic lead. Right. OK, well, um... What have you been... Bell, Bell Book and Candle. I'll, I, I will definitely watch that. Um... <laughs> well, I mean, I, I saw Mank, right? Yes. And I feel like we should talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know whether we should talk about it next week because I was going to try and watch Citizen Kane. Okay. We can talk about it next and week. I was, and I, was also, I also wanted to watch Ed Wood as well, but I probably won't be able to do that by next week because next week is tomorrow. Yeah, in our turn. It's Christmas tomorrow. Basically, this is Christmas Eve in fan club terms. Uh, I saw... But, um, but I do actually have something that's... Bit, I had an appointment, but I've done it before this show. And it was after this show. So I do actually have... I could actually... Hmm, I might see it later. No, people don't need to know this. Go on. What, what were you going to just about to say? I was just about to say, have you seen anything else that you wanted to talk hmm. about? I watched The Undoing. Oh, yeah. I, I want to see these. I watched all of The Undoing in one go. Um, uh, it's the Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant um, kind of uh, drama, thriller. It's quite graphic. Um, there's lots of... There's not lots of sex and violence, but there is one violent act that is repeated over and over again. As, you know, they keep doing flashbacks to it. And it's proper fucking horrible. But it's almost sort of like so awful that it's kind of comical. It's not. It's not comical, but it's like it's so horrific the the crime that you're just kind of like, oh my god, and then they keep just like flashing it up, and you're like, all right, guys, all right. Uh, and it's almost like the more you get to see it, actually, um, the more you kind of like go, well, it's obviously it's a it's a piece of um, prosthetics. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like it's. It's a it's a special effect, as opposed to you know. So it's sort of maybe the less is more approach would have been better. But um, uh, and there's like a little bit of sex and nudity and stuff in it, and you go, oh, interesting. Um, it's uh, uh, that's what I see when I see uh, nudity. I go, interesting, very <laughs> interesting, because uh, I am an android. <laughs> it's, 
So that sounded more like Jimmy Savile's then. <laughs> if only he found Dexit Lust interesting, eh? Mm. How's about that then? Um, it's. <laughs> um, I'd imagine if he he could come back as a cyborg, couldn't he? He would have to keep an eye out for him. Absolutely. Um, let's not get into that. Uh, Christmas is this year's been hard enough. Um, so, <laughs> um, uh, right, yeah. Anyway, so uh, Jimmy Savile. Oh God. Um, so the, the, the what's it called? The Undoing. The Undoing. The Undoing. So Nicole Kidman, she's ginger again. So welcome return to the Red Locks. Yeah. Uh, that's how. That's uh, how I know her. That's how I think of her. I, I didn't. I hadn't realised that it had been so long since she'd had this long red flowing hair. But basically, she's right back to Days of Thunder era. Nicole Kidman. You know, it's, it's Days of Thunder. It's dead calm. It's far and away. It's BMX bandits. Ooh. It's Nicole Kidman is back. Um, yeah, and I spent most of the film just, like, going, her costumes, like, her coats, just her winter coats that she's wearing, uh, and her red, beautiful, long hair, um, uh, she just looked... She looked great. I in did terms that of... with um, Robert Redford in uh, uh, Days of... Days of the Condor, is it called? Three Days of the Condor? Yeah. And wears, like, a pea coat, and I went, God... Robert Redford looks good in a peacoat. I'm going to buy a peacoat. I bought one. Mm. I didn't look as good as Robert Redford in the 70s in three days because it is weird. I think it's. I think well, if you're Robert Redford, clothes are complimentary, but they're yeah. they're, they're not everything. Mm. Uh, that's not meant to be like uh, a comparative insult, Nathaniel. Um, uh, but I do think that it would be the same. It'd be the same for me. Uh, I once had a haircut like Johnny Depp, and uh, I look like uh, a mushroom. <laughs> so there's a lesson to be learned. Uh, always have, uh, always be rich enough to have a personal stylist on hand at all times, and a personal trainer, and a personal chef, so you don't have to think about what you eat. Do you know what I mean? It's just like it's all fucking guys. Buy whatever pea coat you want to buy and, you know, live your best lives. Oh, I've got your... Speaking of... i got your present. I don't know when I'm going to get it to you. But I've got your Christmas present, so I need to get it to you at some point. Um, so, yeah, so Nicole Kidman's costume looks good. She's really good in it. I, I've always rated Nicole Kidman. Um, uh, she makes... It's not just the fact that she's good in stuff, but she makes good choices, I think. Speaking of bewitched, fucking hell, with uh, with Nicole Kidman. She made a couple of terrible choices. It was bewitched and uh, what was the Frank Oz film? Uh, Stepford Wives. Oh, yeah. So she made, like, a couple of kind of things, but she makes, like, really interesting films and um, and that's part of what you are as kind of like an artist. It's not just about like working whenever you can. If you look at Christopher Lloyd's career, it's sort of insane. Like, he... Christopher Lloyd didn't go anywhere. Christopher Lloyd just consistently made shit because he just liked working. And he's done some of the worst films ever made. And a lot of it is animation, but he's done some awful stuff. Um, and yet, 
no, they're so bad that no one's ever heard of them, and people yeah. just think that he, people just think that he's retired and that he only comes out for Back to the Future conventions. Yeah, but it's, it's like, like no, now though, isn't it? He's like, it's quite nice though to be remembered for the one film that everyone loves. Well, and Adam's Family, but because he looks so different in Adam's Family, you never think about him in terms of oh, that's and Christopher Lloyd. Roger Rabbit as well, I guess that's not that. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Like he's a, I mean, what he's what you would describe as a character actor, isn't he? Mm. Exactly. But but to the point where he just made like a string of uh, family mainstream comedies. What? Three, four, five, six. He's made like he made like six huge movies. Did he? Was he in anything else? Piranha Three D. He's in then? Star Trek Three, isn't he? As one of the big ones. Oh, he's great in Star. I've got a, I've got a, a wacky wobbler um, of uh, of him in Star Trek Three. Um, yeah, so he didn't like do only, and he was in Taxi, uh, the, and he produced Frasier. I think so, that's a gift from Christopher Lloyd. No. No. It's, it's not. It's a different one. Because I think that Christopher no. died. He might even have died on something like 9-11. So I remember there being a tribute to him and going, oh, No. Right. Different Christopher ta- No, how can it be? How can it be? No, right, so I, know, taxi. I know the thought process. I've done it myself. Because, ta- OK, so Christopher Lloyd was in Taxi, yeah, yeah? which was yeah. basically a uh, taxi rank... Precursor, taxi rank based precursor to Cheers, right? It's the same format as Cheers, where you have like regulars that come in. um, Oh my God. And then, and then so, uh, so Frasier was in Cheers, which was made by the same company as Taxi. Uh And then Frasier was a spin off from Cheers, and Christopher Lloyd came back and he produced it, but he didn't. Because Christopher Lloyd is an American TV screenwriter and producer. Lloyd was co-creating and executive producer on the TV series Modern Family, which he produces with Stephen Lev- uh, Levitan. Prior to that, Lloyd had an extensive career on many series, primarily Frasier. It's a different Christopher... Oh, my God. Me too. I've, done, I've had that same journey. Been on that same journey. Oh, no. It was even worse then, because I've just been going... It doesn't matter how many shit films he made, because he produced Frasier. He had the money from... He had the Frasier money coming in. But no, he basically did Adam's Family Values, nothing for 15, 20 years, Piranha 3D, Piranha 3 Double D, and then fucking... All that time I was like going... He's got the Frasier money. He doesn't have the Frasier money. doesn't have the Frasier. Anyway, so... Perhaps he did that. Maybe, but I mean, I, I mean, I imagine he. Oh, but then wouldn't that be just a nightmare on credits? So there's a guest voice, Christopher Lloyd. No, not not that one. The the, the actor, not the guy that's produced the show. Absolutely, kind of. Um, anyway, and what's the undoing? It was bloody. It was bloody brilliant. I watched it. Um, it's like a six-hour movie. I watched it in two sittings. Um, Straight down the middle, I watched uh, the first 45 minutes of the first episode and then I watched the next five and a quarter hours the next day. Um, it was... It was it, it was really... Well, I did eight out of ten cats this week and Jimmy Carr did a joke about it and he said the undoing was five hours. And I thought, well, I've done... I've done one hour. I started watching it when I got back from Manchester the other night. 
And I sort of like watched 45 minutes and I was just too tired and I had to go to bed. So then I finished it off and then I was like, oh, 8 out of 10 caps was a big thing that was hanging over me over the last uh, couple of weeks. I was sort of like, I always get stressed when I do it. And, um, um, and I've been sort of like counting down the days to when I had <laughs> 8 out of 10 cats does countdown. I've been counting down the days to when I actually had to do it. I wrote a song for it and it was like all a bit um, uh, stressful. Especially working uh, remotely with musicians um, during lockdown. It's, diff it's difficult. Everything takes two hours. You know, you'll say, uh, oh, that chord's wrong. And they go, oh, I'll just change it. And then an hour later, they come back and um, uh, they go, change the chord. And then you go, well, you've changed the wrong chord. So can you change that back? And then change the actual chord. That and then they'll go away and then they'll come back and say, well, about that? And you go, yeah, but it's not long enough. So can you... And it's like that. It's literally... It's like stop-motion stop animation. It's like everything takes, like, ten times longer than what you think. Um... So it was really stressful, and I got back from Manchester. I sat on my sofa uh, in my flat, uh, and, you know, I've obviously decorated my flat this year. I obviously, I mean, we've talked about it, but I've decorated my flat this year. And um, because it's the end of the year, uh, I had one appointment yesterday afternoon, did it, got in, and I thought, well, I've got a fan club tomorrow, what am I going to do? And I thought, I'll watch The Undoing. And I sat on my sofa and watched five hours of TV, and it's the only—it's the only—it's the first time I've ever done that in my new flat, where I sat on my sofa because I never sit on my sofa. I sit on my uh, comfy chairs, and I sat on my sofa and I just literally had a blanket and some cushions, and I watched five and a quarter hours of Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant in a TV series. Oh, it sounds great. Sounds great. I absolutely loved it. It was brilliant. If you've, uh, so over the Christmas period, if you've got a chance, I would definitely recommend The Undoing. It's sort of like um, one of them 90s movies, like, well, it's sort of like the closest thing. It's, it's like one of them trashy, erotic thriller kind of things, like Presumed Innocent... Uh, basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction, that sort of thing. But spread over five hours, and you've got Nicole Kidman in it, um, who's brilliant, but her hair is, like, hypnotic. And uh, you've got Hugh Grant, uh, fan club favourite Hugh Grant, um, who, like... His performance in it is amazing. He has a speech in it quite late on, um, maybe episode five or four, <clears throat> and it made me cry. Um, like, and and Hugh Grant is a personality movie star. I don't know how great an actor he is, and he had this bloody fucking amazing speech in it that actually made me cry. And um, I thought, fucking hell, like it really sort of giving him the time and space over five, over six hours. To kind of like, uh, you know, I, I guess also being sort of like opposite Nicole Kidman because I think like a lot of his other co-stars have been a little bit lightweight mm -hmm. uh, in the material that he's doing. You know, I don't think Julia Roberts is lightweight, but she 
was very famous for doing romantic comedies and you're not really bringing in sort of like the heavy stuff to that. And Drew Barrymore, as much as I like her, is the epitome of lightweight, really, you know. Um, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. You know, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like he's not really stretched when you have him opposite Nicole Kidman and he's like bringing his A game and he's like doing um, a limited series... I, anyway, he's uh, he's he's incredible in it. He's doing something different from what he normally does. Uh, it starts off kind of like, a, yeah, it's Hugh Grant, but then it like really stretches him. Uh, it was brilliant, and also, um, the, I thought the casting was brilliant. Um, not like there's a little bit of stunt casting, and you go right, and there's one specific casting decision which I thought uh, potentially ruined the film. Ah. Because you kind of like, but in actual fact, um, uh, it, it, it was just clever casting. It, it keeps it's 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 one of those things that keeps you guessing all the way through the all the way through. You know what is it? Uh, what am I watching? Who uh, who's who's the who's the bad guy? What's going on? It's it's, it's clever it's, and it takes you all the way through. And it's like, but like I said, it's trashy entertainment, but um, really enjoyable, really well done. And uh, Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant are both incredible. Right, uh, Christopher Lloyd, different Christopher, uh, also wrote the first four seasons of The Golden Girls. So it's time to get uh, fan club favourite uh, Brian Johnson into the studio. Uh, so really out the fan now, Brian Hayden. I'm all right, lads. I'm all right. How's it going with you? Oh, uh, it's just taken me a couple of minutes to work out. It's been a couple of weeks and, uh, and uh, I've been in lockdown by myself. You're a singer, so you do need to do your vocal exercises. I, I do. I do. And uh, <laughs> uh, that's... Um, uh, and it takes me a while to find my voice as well, Nathaniel. So, it's normally, actually, I start off very high, but actually, my voice is actually way down here. I think you'll find. So, I'm always up here at first. Yeah. But actually, the, the real, the real me, the real Brian Johnson is way down here. I, I always start to, I see excitement of being on your show. Oh, that's nice. Uh, that's nice too. You're still excited after all these weeks. I know you're fans of a lot of things, boys. But uh, let's 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 take the shit out of the hot dog here and uh, let, let me tell you, tell you uh, I'm I'm a big fan of your show, and I know that a lot of the nation are as well, and not just the nation; it's international. You know, I've heard you're big in Crete, Greece, uh, Finland. Wow. Fallen out. We're down. We've dropped sixteen places in Malta this week. Don't, don't you fret about that. You know, you weren't on last week. I noticed. So exactly. that's probably why. That's probably what they can't. They can't listen to you if you don't pump out the hits. That's what I learned. So I learned the hard way when uh, I let Axel Rose take over for me for uh, one and a half tours. So. Let's do some fan mail, shall we, boys? Thanks, Brian. I'd love that. And by the way, I was very quiet because I was giving you the respect and just listening to what you had to say. Ah, that's very kind of you, Nick. Uh, I'm, I'm glad, to, glad, to, glad to hear. Don't give me too much reference, though, Nick. You know, I'm just a, just a working-class bloke that's made it good. 
Right. So, oh, I've never thought about it like that, uh, Brian Johnson. No, that's that's. Uh, why would you? I'm a I'm a rock legend. Anyway, well, uh, why don't you read out the fan mail and uh, we'll stop complimenting each other and uh, you read out the fan mail, Brian, and then we'll bring a guest on. But I do promise I'm not going to interrupt you again. Uh, and if you want to interact with anyone, I'm just going to sit here in awe, and if you want to interact with anyone, you can maybe interact with Nathaniel. Okay, that's fine, but uh, you know what? I like you both equally. Okay, so, so, hello again, Nick and Nathaniel. Back off. Oh, Christopher Lee's arrived! Fucking hell! He's on the Zoom, I can see him on Zoom chat. Okay, <laughs> hello again, Nick and... Nick, ah, okay, hello again, Nick. Nathaniel. Back off. Brian and Natalie. No, nothing for Christopher. A few weeks ago, Nathaniel. Back off. Was wondering if watching 12 films in a week were a waste of his life. Well, according to Spotify Fan Club, is my most listened to podcast of 2020. I've listened to every episode over the course of a year. That's approximately 194 hours. Oh, sorry, fucking hell. Fan Club is my most listened to podcast of 2020. I've listened to every episode over the course of the year. That's approximately 195, 94 hours of listening, Nathaniel, of listening. Sorry, I'm absolutely masculine. I'm so excited to be on the same radio show as Nick. Hell, fucking hell. Every, uh, that's approximately 194 hours of listening. Nathaniel. Metcalf. Am I wasting my life? Christmas fun as possible. Oh. Have as much governmentally sanctioned Christmas fun as possible. And all the best to you all for the new year. From Tom in Tampere, Finland. I just Thank mentioned you, Finland. Tom. That's a nice one. Um, Thanks, yeah, thanks that's Tom. You're not wasting your life. You're not wasting life. What else are you going to do with your lockdown? I think uh, you said you watched 12 films, and I told you that you'd wasted your life because they were all fairly nondescript, terrible films. It's not about what you do with your time. It's about the quality of uh, that activity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for instance, if you watched uh, all seven Police Academy movies in a day... Uh, that's time well spent. Great movies. But if you watch some of the shit that Nathaniel does, that's a complete waste of time. But by that, <laughs> that reckoning, 194 hours of fan club in a year, time well spent. Well, I mean, you've absolutely nailed it. And you can do some of the stuff while you're doing it. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, dear Nick and Nat, what do you think about this tier three thing? I'm so tired of this shit. Cheers, Helen. I think I made. Uh, I think. I think Nick. I think Nick made his point clear to the head of the show. If you don't mind me speaking for you, Nick. No, I, I don't mind that at all. I think Helen. If you go back and listen to the beginning of the show, I think I made my uh, feelings clear. Nathaniel. Uh, similar, really. I mean, if it helps, great. Uh, you know, uh, but there's lots of things which where you go. You know, it, it's going to be a tricky couple of months, but I'm looking forward to getting to the other side of it. Final question for uh, the, the penultimate one. Hey, Nick and Nat, how, do you, how are you doing, lovely boys? This Christmas, I'll have to cook the entire Christmas meal, and I'm struggling to come up with ideas. Have you got any good recipes to suggest? Thanks, Timmy. Um... Well, I'll give you, I'll give you like a little uh, tip for roast potatoes, and then, and then we'll go. Right? If uh, roast potatoes, parboil them till they're um, soft on the outside, but they're still not 100% cooked. Um, take them, put, drain them, 
uh, put them in uh, a colander and just stick them outside or on like a windowsill. Let them cool down till they're cold, right? Then what you do is you get about a centimetre of vegetable oil. Uh, it doesn't have to be, not olive oil, but, uh, but vegetable oil or sunflower oil. Sunflower oil is probably even better. You put that in a pan and uh, whack that in the oven and let that heat up until it's sort of boiling, right? Uh, be very careful because it gets very hot and it's hot oil, all right? Then what you do is uh, you season the potatoes once they're, once they're ice cold uh, and um, you put them in the hot oil, uh, put them back in the oven and then just finish them off in there and keep turning them until they're crispy on the outside. It's idiot proof. Uh, other than the fact that you're dealing with hot oil, so don't be an idiot with that. But that's just cooking, isn't it? So don't stick your head in a pot of boiling water either, all right? So, uh, but roast potatoes, parboil them, stick them outside till they're cold, uh, and then uh, heat up oil till it's bubbling in the oven, and then put your potatoes in there, and they'll come out like absolute. They'll come out like basically deep fried. They're delicious. That's my Christmas tip. Um, there we go. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna play a song now, aren't we, Nathaniel? Then we're gonna get our fucking guest on. And yeah, okay. I'm slightly worried about our guest. I think he might break our bloody legs. <laughs> Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. And we're back. We're back in the studio now. Uh, we're not in the studio. I'm in my living room. Nat's in his uh, washroom. And we're live. We're not live. We're pre-recording on a Tuesday this week. And uh, it's coming out on a Friday. But it's a podcast. So listen to it, whatever. And we're joined uh, now by uh, actor, director, writer, producer, uh, Frank Harper. Uh, how are you doing, Frank? Are you all right? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Thank you for coming uh, on our show. My pleasure. Uh, uh, Fubar, is that the is that the the American GI uh, saying from the Second World War? What fu- fucked up beyond all recognition? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah it is. That's cool. No wonder. Yeah, it's a great That's time for a radio station. Well, you you think that. But uh, it hasn't. Yeah, no, it is. It's very good. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, so people, uh, you are in a film at the moment uh, called uh, uh, Silent Night. That's right. Yeah, I think it's released today or yesterday. Um, it's it's on all sorts of. Uh, you, can, you can see it sort of on everything. You know, download it. I think it's on Sky, Netflix, uh, and I think the DVD's out on the twenty eighth of December. Right. Uh, I watched it last night. I really enjoyed it. Oh, did you enjoy it? Oh, good. Yeah, I did. Um, uh, it, I watched yeah, it on it, Amazon. I watched it on Amazon, so it's definitely on Amazon. Oh, it's on Amazon. Yeah, right. I, I'm crap at promoting stuff, as you can probably tell. <laughs> no, um, I, I watched it. Um, uh, I watched it on Amazon also, yes. Um, so, uh, did you make that this year? No, we actually filmed it beginning of last year. Uh, and I think... British films, especially on the, on, the, on the lower budget, it's such a, an achievement just to get them out now. And I think that they, once they've made the film, they had real struggles to sort of get the film over the line. So some, people don't realise the post-production 
take twice as long to film it, or sometimes even longer. And I think they had to do some pickups because um, it was on such a such a such a tight budget. It was a really tight shooting schedule. So they, you know, Will and Bradley, they've done really well to get the film out there. I think. Hmm. Uh, well, yeah, I know. I just, I just did, um, I did a film. I did one day on a film like three weeks ago, and I think a lot of the crew had just come off um, the new Rise of the Foot Soldier film. Oh, right, and, okay, I, yeah, yeah. and I was like, oh, is that Rise of the Foot Soldier 4? And they were like, no, 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 it's Rise of the Foot Soldier 5. Like, is 4 it, has I've just come out. I've, 4 I've, has I've, just I've, come out, and they've just, right. they've just finished working on 5, and you go, oh, right, okay, so they're kind of like ahead by like yeah. a year. Well, you know, it's a franchise that must must make money, as they wouldn't keep. I mean, I did the first one, I did the original one, but um, it's obviously a franchise that keeps making money. Yes. Mm. Silent Night is a Christmas movie. It's probably not really? much like uh, It's a Wonderful Life or something. But it no, is, it's, not, it's not. It's a Wonderful Life. No, that is not. No. <laughs> but I sort of I thought you might have filmed it maybe last Christmas or something because there is lots no. of. You know, it does sort of have that feeling that. Everywhere there's decorations up and Christmas trees and things. And I thought that would be almost a way to save money if you're filming yeah, it. Yeah, you would have thought so, wouldn't you? But I, I think we shot it in February, February or March last year. I can't remember. <laughs> that, that, before COVID, it just seems like a lifetime ago, you know, when the world was normal. I know. But if you'd have said that you'd filmed it this year, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been that surprised because there's a lot of scenes where there's kind of like you're outside... Yeah, and even yeah. kind of like your even kind of like your introductory scene is kind of like you are sat around you're sat at this huge uh, table in a Chinese restaurant. That's right. And you yeah. kind of like go, you could be two meters apart and film that. I mean, you could you yeah. could still, if you left the doors open, you could have still filmed that during lockdown. Well, um, I, I, I've done I've done I, I did another film about a month ago called Nemesis, and we sort of just got on with it, you know. Uh, yeah. You've got no option, really, so we just sort of got on with it. Because um, basically most of the film is sort of eight people sat around a dinner table, so socially distancing was sort of impossible. So, you know. But, I mean, most of the crew, it's a very young crew, and I don't think, I don't think they're that bothered about it, to be fair. <laughs> if you're under 30, I think it's like... It's, it's, I, don't mean, I don't think they care, really, if you're under 30. So, so you're kind of... This year, you have been... You've had jobs on this year. You haven't been stuck and been able, unable to work. No, I, I was lucky. I, I, I had a very busy start to the year, um, and then I'm, I was sort of um, advising on a screen, new screenplay, which I've ended up uh, rewriting. So that kept me busy during the lockdown. Um, I sort of I came to my senses after binge watching Netflix for a couple of months, but I thought, no, I better do some work. And literally, as the lockdown finished, we was back. We were shooting Nemesis, so. Uh, yes, I've been busy, and I sort of direct on this course called the Real Scene. That's back up and running, so I was sort of working on that as well, directing on that. And What's Nemesis about? It's you, I know you're going to be surprised. Now. It's sort of it's 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 a gangster film. It's, a, it's like a home invasion. <laughs> okay, I, I, so I've, got, I've, got, I've got a new title for. Them. I'm not calling them gangster films anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to call them uh, urban western film noirs. Oh yeah, I mean it is. It's 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 his own it's his own genre, isn't it? I mean it's like kind of like um. So you kind of did Guy Ritchie's first film, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. I did. Yeah. Um, what was it? What was it like working with uh, Guy Ritchie when he was before? Twenty odd years ago now, man. It's a long time ago. No, I just remember that film being a lot of fun because most of us sort of knew each other, 
uh, you know, and there was a lot of hype around it, even even when we were filming it. So it was, it just felt great to be involved. And then obviously when it came out, the sort of well changed really for me. Whereas you know, I went from sort of being quite uh, no one knew who I was to you know people staring at you when you walked into bars. And so where I grew up in London, that was that wasn't particularly a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, it, it was it was life changing for me that film. It really was. And it, you know, looking back now. Um, the only problem is, you know, I work on jobs now and people go to me. I was, it was on site at night and I was coming back from the location to the, um, to, to, to where we was based, the unit base. And there's two, two, two people in the car and they're both talking about how much they enjoyed Lockstock. And sort of the caveat was, though, it came out the year they were born. So it might. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, okay, yeah. That's a wake up call. That's 22 years ago. 22 years ago. Yeah, but it was it was kind of like at that time when it was kind of like, I mean, you'd had Quentin Tarantino, so you'd had, like, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction had come out, and uh, there was kind of like, uh, I think Usual Suspects was around the same time. Yeah. And then, and then Lockstock came out, and it was kind of like very much like seen as like, oh, well, this is like the British Tarantino. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it had that film to it. I think, I mean, for me, Pulp Fiction is almost a perfect film. I mean, it's such a, a good film. Um, but I think um, I, I think it was a perfect storm for for Lockstock. You know, it was sort of it was it was sort of you know you had called Britannia at the time, and it was a height of the lads' mags. So I think it was like a perfect storm when that film came out, and no one had seen a British gangster film for ages, let alone one like that. Yeah, oh, well, not 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 one that was that high profile, and that was yeah. that. Um, it was. I mean, I think that it's got a completely different tone to Pulp Fiction, uh, and I think it's just. I think it's a really enjoyable, entertaining movie. It's funny. It's kind of like uh, um, it's got like action and stuff in it, and it's a gangster movie, and it's got a really amazing cast. Um, yeah. Uh, but but it's it's kind of like it's got its own feel. It does. I think it was fairly un. It's because of all of those kind of gangster films that came out in the nineties that you go a shorthand is like. Oh, it's like a British Pulp Fiction, but it, yeah. it's really its own thing. I think it was pro probably more in the spirit of the Italian job, the original Italian job. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's that, right. It's more of a caper movie. You know, I always say there's a difference between a, a pure gangster movie and the two. The two examples I always use is Get Carter as a pure gangster movie, whereas the Italian job was a caper movie. You know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it really kind of kickstarted, like since Lockstock came out. I mean. It's almost never stopped, has it? That's really like it's almost set up this all like little kind of like subgenre that now you kind of get tons of British gangster movies, so it'd be released all the time, right? And it, it's well, that's why I call them urban westerns, you know, because they, you know most westerns are crime, a crime, um, a crime films, you know. Yeah. So, and I think that that sort of you know, and I think it's become that it, it's become they are almost urban westerns. It, it's, it's become its own genre, you know. Like, I mean, the western sort of died out in the states, but it's sort of re been replaced by the gangster movie. But it doesn't bother me. I know when they turned around to Clint Eastwood and said, "You better not play another cowboy, Clint." You know. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the um, Silent Night it, it is different. When you look at watch a film like that, it isn't. There's something different from that, and that you would get in a similar kind of US crime movie, though. Yeah. Because it does have that thing, like, it's got that sort of social realist thing, so it doesn't feel... It, the, the British sort of crime movies have got something different than the American ones. They're less yeah. blocky, aren't they? And they do feel a bit more... They're more kind of gritty and a bit more... Yeah, because we haven't got as much money, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but I guess you, you like. I presume you sort of enjoy doing them as well because you've directed and written and directed your own kind of gangster film as well, haven't you? So it's that kind of. It must be something you have a fondness for. Yeah, I, I, you know, listen. It's it's it, it's. Uh, I always enjoy playing in roles. It, you know, they're fun to play. You know, and I and I and I sort of made that connection. You know, because I think we've. You know, I said about the film noir, you know, that sort of that, that late forties and early fifties, and I think all them films contain characters. You think, well, who's the good guy? It's not it's a bit like the noirs. There's not really an out and out goodie and a baddie in these films. I think that was the same. Same with St George's Day. I mean, to me, that was sort of Tombstone meets Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You know. <laughs> and do you feel like do you feel they're undervalued or anything now? Because it feels like it is something that. As I say, they've been making them almost off the back of Lockstock or when it's something. Well, new. no, I, w- I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I would say that kind of like maybe Lockstock popularised them, but before that, you had films like ID and The Craze, uh, and they were kind of like films that um, were kind of always like well respected, but they were the sort of films that would terrify me as a kid when I saw them in video shops, and then Lockstock came out around and sort of like popularised it. And then, and then there was kind of like, there was a, there was a, a subgenre of British films. But then within that, you had kind of like all the Danny Dyer movies as well. Yeah, um, yeah. and it became kind of like its own industry, right? Yeah, it's all it's almost become a, it has become its own industry. You know, and I think there was always a reluctance for some reason to make gangster films. I don't know why, but um, it, I think. And I think maybe it's it's the genre that is looked down. People do look down their nose on, you know. But I th- I think that you know, if for argument's sake, if if aliens landed tomorrow and they they said to you, "What's a football hooligan?" You'd shun the football factory. You know, it's one. Of, it's one. Of, you know, it's a really important uh, look at a, 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 a subculture. Uh, you know, I think that film did it better than any any any. I'm, I'm slightly biased because I'm in it, but I think it sort of it did that better than any other film. But, uh, about that something that's real, doesn't it? It's not like yeah. it, is, it is reflective of something that's out there in reality. It's not a piece of fiction either. It's, it's like, no, no. you know, it's, it's, it's based in based in a reality. Yeah, yeah. But I think, but, you know, the, the, the reason people keep making them films is because despite, I don't know, the critics of people not liking them, uh, people vote with their feet, you know, people buy the DVDs, download, download them. So, you know, the, the, the reason they keep making them is because they make money. Yeah, it does sort of feel that way. It feels like, and especially when you think of, like, the British film industry as a whole and everyone's struggling to make them and find money to make them, it does feel like that there does seem to be, they does feel that it's slightly looked down upon, so they are a, like a British product, a British films that do make money, it, yeah, as yeah. opposed to a lot of them that don't and, and are kind of funded and, you know, and it, it does feel like it's a small industry anyway and there's very few movies get made. It's almost kind of quite commendable that, like, there are these people just getting these films out, and, and essentially popular films. Well, someone said to me, you know, like, you know, the, this new, who's the biggest British star in Hollywood, you know, is it? And I said, the biggest British star in Hollywood is Jason Statham, because his films make more money than anyone else's, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then people look down, down and those at Jason's films, but, you know, he's, he's, he's found a niche for himself and has been really successful, and I think for a British actor to sort of Get into that action genre and, and 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 get to the top of it. I remember seeing a poster with him when the first Expendables film came out. I thought he's up there front and centre with Stallone, Willis, 
You know, yeah. So, like, you know, so it, what, what an achievement that is, because they're some of the biggest, you know, certainly biggest Hollywood stars of the 80s and 90s. Amazing. And, I mean, I love Jason Satham films. And uh, uh, whenever you're kind of, like, trying to convince people of the merits of Jason Statham, you kind of, like, do the whole list of them, and then you uh, get up one of his diving videos, and you show, and this is what he was like when he was a diver, and they just shut the fuck up after that, because he's amazing. He's amazing. Um, uh, it is sort of, like, um, a subgenre, but it's also, like... The, the British gangster film exists because, um, like, the, so there was the, Lexi Alexander came over. She made uh, Green Street Hooligan with Elijah Wood, um, and it, so there's kind of like these big ones, and then they kind of like inspire kind of like lots of other people to kind of like, um, you know, not make knockoffs, but kind of like uh, uh, make other films within that genre. But kind of like you're you're right at the like like we said you're in uh, Lockstock and then you write and direct your own stuff you invent it like Beckham. What was um what has been in something like bent it like Beckham like compared to well, kind of like making? Well, well, someone said to me it must have been difficult for you doing bent it like Beckham where you play a nice guy and I went no that's me that that's me sure. that, that that's that's me I'm the nice dad and all the women in my life are driving me mad that's the closest I've ever done to being me and it was a. We filmed it in a, it a. I always remember it was a beautiful. It was a beautiful summer, and uh, so we spent most of it sitting out in a garden. And, and I had a great time with Juliet Stevenson. She was a lot of fun to work with. So it was just a really good job. But um, now people tend to, but that's 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 my real life. That's me and the women in my life driving me mad. So something like Silent Night. Going back to that, um, you you did manage to have a premiere, right? That was last week, was it? The week before? No, it was Friday. Just gone. Oh, yeah, Friday. okay. Yeah. And that must be about the only premiere that's happened this year, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, it was it was nice just to get out. This is the first time I've been out since the, <laughs> the second lockdown. It was nice just to get out. But um, yeah, it, it was it, yeah, it was just nice to be out, really. But it was at the um, Genesis Cinema in Mile End, which I've never been to before, and it's a fabulous venue. Uh, they've refurbished this sort of Art Deco theatre. And I've, so, the first time I've been there, it was really really good location. Where are you from yourself? I'm from South London, so I grew up in a place called Down, which is near Catford. Oh, yeah. So yeah. anyone who knows Down will sort of go shake their heads. <laughs> <laughs> legitimately or not? Yeah, legitimately, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, what, it's what we call Deep South. My grandfather, because um, it sort of, it, it sort of <laughs> plonked in between Bromley and Catford, and my grandfather was in South London ends at the bottom of, down, uh, bottom of Bromley Hill, but... Um, but yes, what we call Deep South. So how did you get started in acting to begin with? I I happened to go to um, see a band at, 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 at the Albany Empire in Deptford. And um, I got chatting to the guy that ran the, uh, the, the sort of youth here. And the next thing I know, I was on stage. That's um, <laughs> to my amazement. And I sort of spent quite a bit of time there um, doing, doing theatre. But did you? You didn't have that bug before, or was it? Did you? Did you kind of know, or was it something? Were you attracted by it because you did want to do it? I think. I, I think. I, I always remember when I when I when, when I left school. You had one careers interview. So this when I was sixteen. So you had one careers interview, and the army came round. That was it. So the, this careers guy said to me, "What do you want to do uh, when you leave school?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to go work at Smithfield Market because I might be like the fifth generation to go there." 
and it was a good job. You know, you had to be related to someone to go and work there. And um, and I sort of said, to him, well, what would you really like to do? I'm like, well, there's only three jobs worth doing: professional footballer, racing driver, or film star. And she looked, he looked at me and went, "Have a nice life at Smithfield Market." <laughs> <laughs> but my, cause my father was a professional footballer, so yeah, it was. Yeah, I think growing up, it was always something quite different. It was always slightly different to other kids because of what he did for a living. And um, yeah, and obviously he played. He, he played. He played for Millwall, so that that, that sort of that, that, that was sort of a, it was like dropping the atom bomb where I grew up. You know, my dad's bigger than your dad. No, my dad played for Millwall. That was the end of the argument. <laughs> so. So we were asking asking you what your favourite things were, and I was gonna I was gonna say we're not even really moving away from gangsters again, are we? So your favourite film is on the waterfront. It's not. I think it's an impossible question to ask. You know, you talked yeah. about Pulp Fiction earlier. Pulp Fiction to me, it's like a it's a, it's flawless. But I think on the waterfront was the first modern movie, and I think Marlon Brando was the first modern movie actor. So I chose that is because of where it began. And I think even now, I mean, that film was made 52, and it hasn't really dated. And it's got one of the great movie scenes of all time with Brando and Steiger in the back of the taxi, now to have been a contender. Um, and it's the first example of this, you know, what, what they call method acting being put to, being put, you can see it in practice, because uh, Brando based his character on the middleweight boxer Rocky, Rocky Graziano. So he sort of studied Graziano for months before they started filming. So it's the first sort of, for me, it's the first modern movie. And Brando, for me, is, I think he's the first, he's the most important actor because I think he's, he, he was the first of his kind, you know, to do that. And do you remember where you were, how old were you, your first time you saw it? Yeah, I would have been uh, 15. Yeah, I, we, they, there was, used to be, used to be um, they, sh- they showed it, uh, it used to be a cinema up, up near King's Cross where they showed old movies. And I went up there and saw it on the big screen. And I, it was, I, I, even now, but it's mesmerising. I thought it was incredible. Brando began that sort of lineage, that, you know, it sort of passed down. So it's sort of generational thing. So it was like Newman McQueen, then De Niro, Pacino, yeah. you know, like Brad Pitt, Denzel Washington. So that, but I think it started with Brando. Hmm. Yeah. Well, but, yeah, before then it was very theatrical and it yeah, was kind yeah. of... Acting was kind of like, oh, we're on a sound stage, and now we're going to perform it, and it's almost like you could do it in front of an audience. Yeah. And then Marlon Brando sort of like introduced, oh, do you know what you could do? Because you got microphones, you can like mumble the fuck out of all your dialogue and kind of throw <laughs> throw half your lines away, and then people were like, oh yeah, just like real life, and then all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. everyone started doing it. But like he really invented kind of um, modern screen. Yeah, I think he's the first modern movie actor. That's, you know, so, you know, I, 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 sort of, I sort of lecture and direct on this course called The Real Scene, and, and that's, I always say to the, the, the people that I'm working with, you know, Brando was the first modern movie actor, and, you know, On the Waterfront is the first modern movie. It's also one of the first movies that was about working-class people. Mm. You know, it, 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 you know but blue, or blue-collar, as they say in the States, you know, and, yeah. and, it's, you know, and it's a gangster movie as well, because, you know, it's all about the waterfront and how corrupt it was in New York, but it's... Um, and I think it still stands up. Like I say, the scene with Brando and Steiger, you know, I could have been a contender. It's still one of the magical movie moments. And it is. It's, it still sort of resonates as well. That it's someone who doesn't really have, he doesn't really have a choice. Yeah, he throws exactly. the fight with his brother. But, like, there is that idea that there's another path where he does get to be, you know, a big, a big boxer and he gets to yeah. have a completely different life, but he hasn't. 
Yeah. No, it's it's a yeah, it's, it, but it's say, but that's sort of, for me. That's where it began, and I think obviously it followed quite quickly by Streetcar Named Desire, which again is another you know it, it, it was his second great movie, really. Hmm. Do you think some of the do you think some of um, some of the reason why you, you love that film is because you feel like uh, there's some level of representation on screen? What in on the waterfront? Yeah. Like, yeah. Do you, do you, do you feel like you related to it and you felt, you know... Yeah, I think the first 10 years of my working life was spent at Smithfield. So I think that was, you know... So I think that's one of the... People say to me, why do you play such convincing gangsters? Because I spent the first 10 years of my life working at Smithfield. But um, but it had that feel to it. It had that very working-class feel to it, you know. And, and there's a sort of... There was... I mean, there was a real banter at Smithfield. You know, people say to me, do you ever worry about what um, about reviews or critics. I went, listen, I, I was 10 years at Smithfield Market. I was insulted by experts. So <laughs> it really wore off a duck flag. You spend a day at Smithfield, you can take any sort of abuse, comes your way. So, were you, so when you saw it at 15, it was still a long time before you started acting then. So what 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 year were you then in Deptford and going to see the, getting involved in that? Uh, but it would have been, oh God, 82. 82. Yeah, so I would have been 20. Yeah, yeah. And how much did something like On the Waterfront, was that still in your mind? Were you aware watching it that you were... I mean, cause it's easy, you go now and you look back and you go, oh, well, of course, that's Brando and that's the, that was completely unlike other films at the time. Yeah, I think... I, I think yeah, no, I think, you know, but what I, what I realised as I got, as I got into, like, more into acting, I'd always loved films. You know, my dad was a big film buff, so was my uncle. They loved their films. So I think I sort of, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, going to, the, going to the, the cinema, going to the movies was always a big deal growing up. You know, saying that, I, I, you know, when the um, when the curtain went up and the sort of the, the, the credit rating came out, it was an excitement about it, you know. Um, it was something really exciting about going to the cinema. And it wasn't just, you know, also, you know, other films, obviously The Godfather was a, was a I've never seen that, and Pathion with Steve McQueen. I know it was like big films that really made an impression on me. But I think the next time I saw a performance that was really, where did that come from, was De Niro in Taxi Driver. Mm. I mean, I watched that again. I watched that again. I watched that again a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that film. Well, do you know what? Um, so I'm seeing. I'm, I've got a girlfriend. Uh, we watched Joker, and uh, because we watched Joker, she really liked Joker. And I said, "Well, you know, it's sort of based on Taxi Driver and King of Comedy." Yeah, and well, King of Comedy is a. Is a, is a I mean, King of Comedy is one of the great. Um, it's a fantastic movie, but it's less known, isn't it? It's one of the lesser known school saves you did in row sort of. Um, it's really weird as well, yeah, because we, we watched them back-to-back. So we watched uh, Text Driver, then the next day we watched King of Comedy. And now we're going through, like, she's not seen any films, so then you watch, like, uh, we watched Goodfellas the other day, and it's kind yeah. of like... And she's just watching these films for the first time going, oh, my God, that's amazing. And you go, yeah, yeah and it has been for 30 years. So um, <laughs> you've got no excuse. You've got no excuse. But, um, but with uh, Taxi Driver in 18, and when it's violent, it's very violent. And then King of Comedy is sort of like almost equally dark. But it's a, it's a very PG. dark film. It's very a PG and it's kind of like, you know, anyone can watch it. And um, uh, and the performances are like um, Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver and Robert De Niro in King of Comedy. They're like 
they're like polar opposite characters, but it gets to the same place. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's it, and, uh, yeah. King of Comedy is a very underrated film. It's a film you know people don't really know, but it's 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 I think it's one of his best. It's certainly one of his best performances. But it's that real. It is a dark film. It's a real dark film. It's so, but it's it is it's an amazing performance. It's so unlike you know you get to. 1990s with Robert De Niro, and then even when he did something like Cape Fear, it was sort of like a parody of... It's like, well, Robert De Niro knows how to do this character. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and then yeah. he had, like, the fan, and then he played psychopaths, and then it was just like, oh, and then he did Meet the Parents at the end of the 90s. It's just like, who better to play the worst, the worst dad in the world? But, like, when you go back to, like... That Taxi Driver yeah, and yeah. King of Comedy. You go, King of Comedy is such a performance, like unlike anything else that he did. It's so, um, it's so cringy. But and also, I've only ever seen it on my own. So when I watched it with my girlfriend, I didn't realize. I don't know if this ever. I didn't realise how funny it was, you know, because yeah. I've only ever watched it and gone, yeah, yeah, very good. And then when you watch it with someone else and there's, like, an audience, you kind of, like, get a different experience out of a film that maybe you're really familiar with. I, think, I mean, the other, the other sort of great film of that, I mean, I know it's a cliche, but the other, I mean, one of the great performances of all time is, 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 is where he played Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull. I mean, that was extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's that era, really, where yeah. he kind of, yeah. like... Like from Mean Streets to um, well, I don't know what did he do. I think Mean Streets, Mean Streets is closer to a British gangster film than anything else because Scorsese didn't have the money. But then someone said to me, you know, Mean Streets would never get made today because for the first hour nothing happens. Mm. It's just a lot of people talking. <laughs> mm. I think like even in something like Silent Night, it does it does a really good job of building up the kind of tension, and you know that you know that you know when something goes wrong. You you immediately feel for the character, and even though he's not he's not necessarily a good guy at all, yeah. You do know straight away it's set up very well. You do you do immediately go. You have that sinking feeling when you go. I mean yeah. that, like that. So it does a very good job of setting something up like that, and knowing that giving you that sort of grim. I think as well. I think as well when you especially with it, that, that sort of genre, there has to be points where the characters make you laugh. Otherwise, you know, you go, you know, it's like Goodfellas, you're laughing, but you're laughing. I shouldn't really be laughing at this, but it's funny. But Goodfellas is a classic. And Goodfellas, when it's violent, is very violent, but there's not a lot of violence in Goodfellas. Yeah. No. Violent thing in Goodfellas is when they kill Billy Betts. But apart from that. Yeah. But they open with it as well. And then you've got. Then you've got that hanging over you for, like, half the film. And then when yeah. they get back to that, you're just like, oh, fucking hell. And it's really <laughs> great. I mean, I, I always forget, like, how early the uh, funny guy uh, bit is. It's like, yeah. it's almost like, it's like you have, like, 15 minutes of narration. And then it's like almost like that's the first scene in the film. Yeah. And, and, then, um, and then there's a bit later on where um, Robert De Niro is going to kill uh, Maury, the wig guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Joe Pesci's doing this. Sorry, Joe Pesci's doing this speech at the table, and um, and you know what a cunt Joe Pesci has been for the entire film. Yeah, and you know how awful he is, but he's doing this story, and it's really, really funny. 
and uh, it's just I don't know. I just think that's one. I think it's one of the best films ever made. Yeah, yeah no, I, I agree. I think it is. I think it is. I think it is. It is one of the best films ever made. I agree. You know, like, you know, when you said what's your favourite film, you know, well that would be that would be up there with them. You know, um, but then you know, Lawrence for Arabia is one of my favourite films. So is Casablanca. You know, so but but yeah. Yeah, Casablanca, I think, is, 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 is Cas- almost a perfect film. Cas- Casablanca is almost like a blueprint on how to make a Hollywood movie. It's got, yes, like, it like yeah. there's almost something quotable in every... I watched that again yeah. in lockdown. I mean, I think I think you're right. I think that is almost, like, the perfect movie. Or it's yeah. certainly the perfect... Before Marlon Brando came along and ruined everything yeah. with his mumbling, it's, like, the perfect Hollywood... It's the perfect example of how you made a Hollywood movie or what was special about actors like Humphrey Bogart yeah. and, uh, and Ingrid Bergman. It's just kind of like Casablanca. It hasn't, it hasn't aged a day. No, it's it hasn't. Like, no. It's no, like... Because it, so, so to say, it's, it's more genres in Casablanca than any other movie. You know, it's, it's a war film, so it's set in a war. It's a massive propaganda film because it was shot in '42. It's a comedy. It's like forty odd songs in Casablanca. It's a musical as well, and obviously the whole sort of romance uh, melodrama thing between Brando and Bergman. I mean, it's it's uh, sorry Bogart and Bergman, but no, it's, it, it it covers so many genres. I think you're right. That's what makes it almost the po- perfect Hollywood film of that of that era, certainly. I think it's great, and also yeah, like you said, it was made in the time it was set. So it's kind of like this, um, uh, what do you call it, like a time capsule of yeah. like how they made stuff. But because of that, it's a period film without it really being a period it's film. A period film, it? absolutely, yeah. No, you're right, you're absolutely right. No, it's, it's a, yeah, there's so many memorable one-liners in it, you can just go on all day about it, you know. Do you know that um, Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman hardly ever talk to each other? And the only time... That um, not because they didn't like each other, but Humphrey Bogart's wife was really jealous, so he uh, always like kept clear of his leading ladies. And they had one meeting with each other, which is where they went out for lunch before they started filming. And they, uh, the thing that they talked about over lunch was how they could both get out of making Casablanca. Because <laughs> <laughs> at the time it was like the most cliched kind of sentimental. Uh, it was kind of like it was seen as trash and they were just like, oh, no, we're making this film, Casablanca. And like everything that they didn't like about it at the time has been the stuff that's helped it survive over all the years. I think as well, because they shot three different endings. I, I, I think the fact that they don't end up together, that's what makes it so different. You know, the fact that she goes off with her husband because the war's more important than their relationship. And that's why it's a massive propaganda film as well, in that sense, by giving it that ending. You know, the most important thing at the moment is winning the war, not the mm. fact that you know, these two people are hopelessly in love with each other. So um, I think that's what makes it different as well, is the ending. Yeah. And it's been... Uh, not that we're going to go on and on about Casablanca forever, but, like, <laughs> it literally has... Inf- it's influenced everything. There's, like, a Red Dwarf episode that's based on Casablanca. There was a Bugs Bunny cartoon that's based on Casablanca. The Pamela Anderson movie, Barbed Wire, is a remake of Casablanca. Yeah. Uh, there's sort of, like, uh, Play It Again, Sam, the Woody Allen movie. You know what I mean? There's so many, like, in pop culture, you watch Casablanca... The Usual Suspects is a reference from Casablanca. Yeah. Uh, and when you're watching Casablanca with someone for the first time, it's amazing because like, every five minutes they go, oh! Or, that's like, where oh, that's from. That. 
Yeah, it's it, it's like crazy. Like Casablanca is like influential in way. If hey guys, if you're listening at home and you've never seen Casablanca, watch Casablanca uh, and Silent Night. Um, so and Silent, uh, yeah, I think it's Silent Night. <laughs> the producers of Silent um, Night and directors will be hang on. Why is he talking about Casablanca? We might make a plug in Silent Night. <laughs> uh, uh, so you have uh, written um, and directed and uh, acted, and uh, what what role do you enjoy the most? I really enjoyed directing. I didn't think I would. I sort of it, it sort of I sort of we got to the point with Sir George's Day where. Two of the producers turned around and said, "The best way forward is, is if you direct it." I, I never intended to direct it. The best way forward is if you direct it. And I thought, if if to do the sort of film I want, it's probably best if I did direct this one because it, it was it was and a very clear. It was very clear in my head what it had to be, you know. And it, it's it, it's about a culture that they see coming to an end. Um, so, but I actually, I, I did enjoy directing. Uh, the politics of making a film, not so much, but the, and I've, I've so I've been, I did a short film last year uh, called Sisterhood, which I think hopefully will be out next year. So, uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really enjoying directing. I mean, hopefully I'm going to do it again next year, so. What do you mean yeah. by the politics of it? The personalities, <laughs> you mean, or? No, it's, 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 it's. There's a lot of politics that goes with making a film, and there's you know, and it's sort of getting the cast that you want, shooting the film that you want. Yeah, it's a fine line between taking good advice and going, hang on a minute, I'm not doing a version of your, you know, this is my film. It's not how you see the film. Does that make sense? Sometimes you get people want to do their version of your film, and then every now and again you have to dig your heels in, you know. And also, it's a lot of arguments about casting, and uh, and it's all a compromise. I mean, I think that. I think I, I remember speaking to Shane Meadows and Shane said, you know, if the film turns out 70% of what you had in your head when you started, then you've had a result, you know? There's always stuff that's, a, you know, I look at St George's Day, some stuff is just how I pictured it in my head when I wrote it. Um, and other stuff, I go, oh, yeah, we were struggling that day for time. I didn't get all the shots I needed, you know. But um, And I think it took me about... I think about four years after I'd finished it, I actually sat down and actually thought, oh, I, I sort of enjoyed it. I thought, no, nah, I had done a bad job, you know. It's interesting to say you weren't, you know, you weren't keen to direct or you weren't like, because you're obviously like a big film fan, do you know what I mean? It would feel yeah. like talking to you, you definitely get the impression that you are, it is something you're mad about, right? You love, you love film. So the the opportunity, I would have thought, almost you would be like, like oh, you couldn't wait to direct yeah, do you know what? It just—I never really thought about it, you know, because I, I enjoy, you know, I enjoy acting so much, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, but I remember—I remember after doing St George's Day, my next job was was Ripper Street, and someone said to me, you know, as it feel being back just as an actor, I went, well, it's quite nice that the only question I get asked in the morning is, do you want tea or coffee, rather than like a hundred <laughs> questions. <laughs> yeah. But the actual, no, the actual filming, and I was lucky; I had a very experienced cast. You know, I think very experienced cast, and a lot of them are mates as well. Um, which I got slagged off for um, making a film with me mates. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> so it's not like your mates, uh, like whoever. That's got some like big, big mates. Yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, well, I don't be mates to drink with in the pub on Sunday. No, <laughs> <laughs> they weren't really complaining when Charles Dance turns up, though, were they? Like... Uh, he was brilliant. I, I was so lucky to get him. He was, you know, um, he, he, 
I was quite surprised. We knew, I knew I needed someone with some gravitas to sort of, you know, make it believable that he's standing there telling me Craig and Vince off, you know. So, um, and he certainly had that. But um, someone suggested, and I thought he won't come and do this British gangster film. And much to my surprise, he, he, you know, he said yes. And, he, you know, he's brilliant in it. He's really good. But I guess it's like, you know, I, I, I kind of think in this country, it's, you know, still to do a film is always, it still feels like a, a big thing, right? Even if you're doing, it might be a low-budget film or something, but it still has a bit of gravitas, doesn't it? And I think people people who are film actors who, who like doing that thing, I think are always attracted to doing, like, a, a movie. Is that yeah, fair? I think so. I think as well, I mean, the biggest difference between, not so much now, but it's all the different channels and they're constantly rerunning old stuff, you know, but, like, <laughs> I turned, I turned a... I was watching a, an episode of Kojak, which I loved as a kid, and just couldn't believe how dated it was, you know. But um, but no, I think with films, films are forever, you know. So um, if you take uh, Bend It Like Beckham, that'll probably get shown every other Christmas for the next 50 years, probably. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what's magic about them, though, as well. Yeah, that's, that's what's magic about film. You know, we're talking about Casablanca, you know, that was made... 80-odd years ago, and we're still... Um, on the waterfront was made, you know, 70 years ago, and we're standing there talking about it, or sitting there talking about it anyway. Yeah. And you mentioned Shane Meadows a minute ago. So you worked with him three times, right? Yeah, I did... Shit, yes, I did three... done three of Shane's films, these first two, and uh, this is England, yeah. And what's he like to work with? Because I guess, first off, he wouldn't have been... When you first started working with him, he wasn't Shane Meadows, right? He was just a new <laughs> director. No, he was. I, I remember going and meeting him uh, t- t- for twenty four seven, and um, uh, it was a weird one because uh, I, 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 the year before, I'd been out in Ireland doing a TV series called The Governor, and I tell this story quite a lot. Is a lot of it's about fate and things that meant to be. And back then, uh, we was told that we were going to do a third series, and you know, we, we'd do, we'd be out there a little bit longer, we'd do more episodes. You know, we were shooting out in Dublin. We was having a fantastic time in Dublin. Uh, and um, it, I'd have signed there and then. This is sort of, I don't know, just before Christmas. Uh, and anyways, a delay and a delay and a delay. So my agent said, you better go for these two auditions. One was 24-7, the other was Lockstock. So, um, and I went to see Shane. And I, Shane was trying to convince me to be in the films. He, he'd seen In the Name of the Father, which was my first sort of proper job. Uh, yeah, and, and then and I think, a week later, I went to see Guy Ritchie for Lockstock. So it was a bit of a weird... And then... I got up at the park for 24-7, and my agent goes, well, you better hold out, you know, just in case the governor comes up, because all these are thinking about the money. I went, I've got a chance to do a film with Bob Hoskins. I don't care if the governor comes up. I'm going to do 24-7, you know. I mean, with his Shane Meadows, everyone's sort of raving about, you know. So, yeah, it was, it was a strange time. But Bob what was that like? What yeah. was that like, working with Hoskins? It was brilliant. It, 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 it was a massive, because at the time, you know, he was sort of, you know, you know he was Hollywood A-list, you know, he, I think he'd just done Mermaids with Cher and Winona Ryder and all that sort of thing. Right, yeah. And, but, also, um, but also, Bob Hoskins started off doing stuff like Mona Lisa and he Longer started Friday, yeah. British gangsters, yeah. 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 I mean, Longer Friday is probably one of the the yeah. first classic gangster movie after Get Carter, I suppose, you know. That was late mm. 70s, wasn't it, I think. And that, that, was a big, that was a big influence on me. Mm. You know, I think yeah. Michael Caine and Bob Hoskins were a big influence on me as well. I mean, I, Caine, for me... Is the most for me personally is the most important British actor because he was the first person to be a leading man speaking in his own regional accent and wearing glasses. Yeah, unheard of then, you know. 
I really love yes. um, the Ipcris file. And that's yeah. that sort of weird thing of this guy who's kind of, he is tough, but he's, it's the idea of like, his whole look is almost that at that time in the 60s, the fact that he's wearing glasses is almost seen as like, he must be this sort of wimp or so. It's not even like, it sort of seems a bit mad now, but this whole idea that he's this sort of spy who wears glasses is almost like the big, the big sort of selling point of him being like this kind of a bit weedy or a bit. That is, it's, that it's, it, it, I'll, I'll be lucky enough to work with him as well when he's very tall. <laughs> and very but, funny, very funny man. But I interrupted you talking about Bob Hoskins because I got excited about the fact that he started off making gangster films. But he, he just made Mermaids. So I missed that. So, But he just made Mermaids and then you were working with him. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, so uh, I learned a massive lesson because the first scene with him, it was a big deal for me to work with him. You know, it's, it's probably only my fourth or fifth film. And um, there's, there's a scene in a, in a car and um, he sort of said to me, you know, you've got all the funny lines in this. He said, I'm just going to be your straight man, just so you know. He said, I'm gonna, yeah, he said this is your scene. You know, and, and a lot of actors wouldn't do that. Uh, but, he, you know, for him... It was about what was best for the film and what was best for the scene, not about any sort of ego of being, well, I'm a star and this kid's only done four films and I've never heard of him, you know. Mm. So that was a massive lesson in life. And I think I think if you spoke to Shane now, Shane would probably say, you know, having some of his experience on his first feature was... was uh, I think he did say to me it was a massive help having Bob because if he wasn't sure he could turn to Bob, you know, like Shane said, I've just been making films with my mates and suddenly I've got all these crew and toys and cameras, you know? So I'm sure Shane would say that uh, if you spoke to him, that having Bob was a massive help for his first film. And I guess it's, it, it, he's also lucky in that way, isn't he? Because I guess you could work with someone who was that big a star who could have almost run the show and said... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm going to be... Uh, it's yeah. all about me or whatever. Well, listen, I've, I've been... I've, I'll work with a few actors. It's, it's, that's very much their uh, MO. <laughs> <laughs> I love Bob Hoskins. He's like, he's probably one of the most watchable actors. Yeah. You can't take your eyes off him. And yeah. it's like that he's not, you know, as someone who, um, with all respect to him, he's not the most obvious movie star by any means. No, no. Someone who, from like, he was like Long Good Friday <laughs> onwards, you just can't take your eyes off him. So he's he like, was the original. He was the he was the original choice for Wolverine in X Men. Was he really? Like, they were like, well, in terms of, like, Wolverine in the comic books, he's, like, five foot tall and he's hairy. And right. so you, I think we're all haunted from that scene in Who Framed Roger Rabbit when uh, he's uh, he's getting dressed and Jessica Rabbit visits him and uh, we just see how hairy Bob Hoskins is. Um, <laughs> but, like, um, uh, yeah, so they were like, he's perfect casting for Wolverine. And then they went with six foot three Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman, but, yeah. Like, yeah, but like huge, uh, but like uh, Bob Hoskins was more like accurate to how Wolverine to the cartoons, yeah, yeah, mm. comic books, yeah, yeah. And also, it's kind of like I think our generation kind of like grew up with Bob Hoskins from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, yeah. And he's so loved. He's so he was he's so loved. But also, uh, the fact is that as a kid, your only other opportunity to see him was in Super Mario Brothers which was kind of like, it's still regarded as one of the worst films ever made. It's the one film that he said he absolutely regrets making it. He hated, you know, he hated yeah. it and all of that. Stuff. But, you know, we still love him from that, you know. 
Well, it's, um, it's, it, it does, it does, he did tell a couple of great stories about Dennis Hopper, but I can't really repeat them. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Oh look, um, we've uh, we've basically run out of time. Um, we've got enough time now to play. Uh, we're going to play a game with you. Well, Nathaniel's going to play a game with you, if that's all right. Um, uh, but uh, we've been talking to Frank Harper. Uh, he's uh, got a film that's out now called Silent Night. It's a wonderful feel-good Christmas movie uh, for <laughs> all the family. Uh, so uh, take my word for it. Gather around on Christmas Day. Yes. If you're listening, do not sit down with Nan and Granddad. You've got Granddad. <laughs> <laughs> um, or the kids. But, uh, Don't sit down with the kids and watch it. Watch uh, it when you've gone to bed. Put put Silent Night. <laughs> so it's available um, on Amazon for sure, and I think all the other kind of streaming platforms you can get it. And um, yeah, it's great. So it's like a sort of sort of social realist kind of proper kind of crime movie, isn't it? It's got like a... But, yeah, it's a great movie. I saw it last night. And check before it out. We, um, before we play the game, Nick, um, have you got any advice for anyone that's sort of like uh, any aspiring uh, British actors or filmmakers? Don't have to be British, uh, but have you got any advice for anyone that's starting out in the industry? Go and get a proper job. <laughs> go and get a proper job. <laughs> Well, at the moment, nah, listen. You just got to stick at it. It's a tough, it's a tough industry, uh, but you just got to keep, you just got to keep toughing it out. You know, like I, I, I did. I, I was, I think I did Name of the Father. I was, I just turned thirty, so you know, it, it's it, that was the first real job I had. You know, and sort of locked up on twenty four seven, like four or five years after that. So you just got to keep going, got to keep plugging away. Mm-hmm. Okay, Frank. This is the game. The game's called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my opinion to score points. Starting with with Prince. Is Prince Charles better better or worse than Prince? Better. He's worse. Yeah, he's worse. (laughs) Charlie Chaplin, better or worse than Prince Charles? Worse. Better. Better. Michael Parkinson. (laughs) Better or worse than Charlie Chaplin? Worse. Worse, yeah. Uh, Harvey Keitel, better or worse than Michael Parkinson? Better. Better. Better, yeah. Graham Norton, better or worse than Harvey Keitel? Worse. 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 Uh, Jimi Hendrix, better or worse than Graham Norton? Better. 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 Jimmy Tarbuck, better or worse than Jimi Hendrix? Uh, this is a mate of mine, so I've got to better say Jimmy Tarbuck's better. He is worse, but he's a high card. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Carrey, better or worse than G- uh, Jimmy Tarbuck? Oh, Jimmy Tarbuck's better, like I said, Lisa's a mate of mine. <laughs> uh, Mariah Carey, better or worse than Jim Carrey? Better. Worse. Worse, <laughs> she is worse. Burt Reynolds, better or worse than Mariah Carey? Better. 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 What's the score, Natalie? A six. Six. You would have done better, except for your unconditional love of Prince Charles. So, uh, well, that's uh, not that's, unconditional that is... love of Prince Charles. I just think <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still edging me bets case to get a knighthood, you see. That's why I'm not slagging oh, off. Sure. <laughs> sure. Of course. Of course. Worth of course. doing. You're um, shooting now. Absolutely. You never know. <laughs> 
Uh, it's, but you scored a six, which means that you're not as good as uh, Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, Jason Manfred, Joe Scaladini with ten, David Baddiel, Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine, Matthew Crosby, Susie Dent, Charles Eston, Eddie Hearn, David Hepworth, Jason Isaacson, Simon West, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt O'Kine, Miranda Raisin, Griff Rhys-Jones, Chris Starks, Jill Whiffen with eight, James King, Henry Normal, Janet Varney, Johnny Vegas with seven, but you are as good as... Uh, Gary Delaney with six. So that's some comfort. That is some some comfort. Um, Thank you very much for being a guest on our show today. Thank you so much for coming Uh, up. No, it's great talking about... It's great talking to two people who know their films. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I hope you find them one day. Uh, thank you for uh, th- thank you for having a lovely penultimate chat uh, before the end of the year. And thank you, everyone, uh, for listening at home. I hope you all stay safe, and uh, we'll talk to you next week on Christmas Day uh, if you've got nothing better to do. All right, thank you. Uh, goodbye. <laughs>